So Peter says, you are the Messiah. And if you look up the word Messiah, you're going to find out that this word uh, has a, a very distinct meaning. It's a future deliverer, a future savior king who is going to come rescue his people and usher in a time of prosperity and blessing. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word. And that's what the, you know, that's, and so, so a lot of times when we refer to Jesus, and, and, and also in, in the Bible as well, uh, he, he's referred to not as Jesus Messiah, as in the great Chris Tomlin song that some of you know, because you listen to Caleb way too much, but, um, uh, but he's called Jesus Christ. And I just want to give you some information today. Christ is not Jesus' last name, as many people <laughs> As many people assume, uh, it is not his last name. Uh, Christ is the Greek um, word uh, for the Hebrew word Messiah. So in, in, in Hebrew, it's Messiah or Mashiach, something like that. I can't roll my R's, so whatever. Um, and in Greek, it is Christos, which is, which is Christ. And it, it means the anointed one that is to come, that will deliver us, that will establish or reestablish the throne of David, and he will rule with might and power and lead us in to the prosperity that we once knew uh, from the time of King David and King Solomon. And to really understand this proclamation that Peter is making. I wish I could like do like the flashback uh, sound with like the wavy, you know, LSD looking high stuff. I don't know. That's what Don told me. That's what it looks like. But um, you know, to really understand, uh, some of y'all are so offended right now, and I apologize. It's just, I just do me, okay? Um, to really understand Peter's proclamation that Jesus, you are the Messiah, you got to go back a thousand years. That's clue, cute flashback music right now and the wavy stuff right are you seeing it in your brain right now raise your hand if you see the flashback it's, it's cool 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 some of y'all need to get with the program and and help me out here so you got to go back about a thousand years and you if you were to turn on your bible you would go to first samuel so just do that just for fun because you need to practice finding where stuff is in your bible so you're going to go to first samuel and and you're going to go to Let's, say, let's just go to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, right? We're just going to go there. It's page 246 if you have this Bible. So that's where we're going to go. So that's a thousand years approximately before Mark chapter 8. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're rewinding the clock approximately a thousand years. And in this, in this chapter, you're going to see, and if you've got your Bible open, it might even be the heading right there in your Bible, Israel requests a king. Anybody see that in your Bible or something along those lines? Yeah. So, so to understand that, like that heading, you've actually got to go back about another thousand years, right? So we are, from where we are today, we are 4,000 years in the past. And we're going to go all the way back to Abraham. And then we're going to go to Isaac. And Abraham was the one that God called and he said, I, go to a land that I will show you. I will establish you as a great nation. And, and your children will be like the stars of the sky. And, and you won't even be able to count them. And, and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Which, in that moment, God is speaking prophetically to Abraham and saying, through you, in which he did do this in Jesus Christ, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. 
And so then we go to Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. And then from Isaac we go to Jacob, who was then called Israel. And if you remember, Jacob had a son whose name was Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. He stays there. The entire family of Jacob then goes to Israel. And they spend 400 years, I mean, they go to Egypt. And they spend 400 years in captivity to the Egyptians until a certain someone saw a plant on fire that did not burn. Anybody know his name? Moses. Great. I'm so glad nobody said Noah. It's awkward when you say things like that and people call out the wrong answers and you don't want to hurt their feelings, but you're like, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm so sorry. You really need to read your Bible more. So Moses then leads the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And there's a great sermon hidden there. You can get Israel out of Egypt, but it sure is hard to get Egypt out of Israel. It's a really good sermon. I'm going to preach it sometime soon. And then for Moses, you've got Joshua. I think we actually talked about Joshua last week a good bit. And then Joshua takes over the leadership uh, after Moses dies. And, and, then, and then you enter into this period of time. Uh, and it, if it's in your Bible, it, it's the book called Judges. And in Judges, I mean, Judges is a crazy book. If you have not read Judges lately, you need to read it. And, and, and if you're doing our Bible reading plan, hold on, it's coming up. After you struggle through Leviticus, eventually you'll get there. And if you enjoy Leviticus, I don't want to have fun with you because you don't know how to have fun. <laughs> I remember the first time I read the Bible through and they started talking. This is no joke. I was reading through Leviticus and I believe even some of Numbers. And it talks about the sacrifices and it talks about the things that you do with specific organs. I literally made myself sick reading the Bible. I can't do it. I can't do it. Pastor Wiseman was showing me some stuff where he had a procedure done, and I about had to run out the door, y'all. I just don't do <laughs> medical, clinical stuff. I don't even care if it's in the Word. You start talking about gallbladders and stuff, I can't do it. Can't do it. Who said amen to that? That's what's up. But in the judges, you know, you've got Gideon, right? Everybody loves Gideon. Although Gideon was kind of a twerp, if you read the whole story of Gideon. Twerp, that's a Mississippi word for twerp. <laughs> Not twerk, twerp. They're very, very, very different. <laughs> then you've got Samson, right? Everybody likes Samson, because he was strong. And, and, and then he got a haircut. And then he wasn't strong anymore. And you got, hey there, Delilah, who was in there. She wasn't a judge, though. She was just, never mind, I can't say what I wanted to say there. I do have some respect. You got Samuel, who actually, while he is most prominent in 1 Samuel, he's considered to be the last judge of Israel. Now, the judges weren't kings. They were just people that God anointed and called and used at certain times in history to, to help deliver his people out of, uh, uh, of, of bad circumstances. And, and as you read, you know, from Abraham, or really even if you go back to Noah, and you read all the way through the end of Judges, there's this theme of impossible situations, but in every single one of them, God miraculously and supernaturally makes a way, right? I mean, you, you, you've got Noah, and, and, he, and it's never rained, and, and God says, build a boat, because it's going to rain. 
and, and it's going to rain so much that, that the whole earth will be flooded, but I want to save you. Then you've got somebody like Abraham. Now, now, you may not think that this is a big deal, but we're talking about a 90-year-old man and woman who are able to have children. And I don't want to make light of that. That's a big deal. You can even go back a little earlier in Abraham's life when he's just living with his family and God speaks to him. And up until that point, we have no real reason to believe that he was a follower of, of Yahweh, of God Almighty. I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't like he was raised in that faith. He, he was the, he's the patriarch. He is the, the first person of, of what we would call now the Jewish faith. And, and, and God speaks to him and he says, I want you to go somewhere. Just go. I mean, that's crazy, right? And I'm going to show you where you are when you get there. All right, cool, 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 cool. So just start walking. Yep, just go. Which way? I don't know. Pick a direction. All right, let's go that way. And then miracles happen. You've got, you know, you fast forward, and you get through Isaac and Jacob, and, and if you're doing our Bible reading plan, somebody was, tech, a few people have actually messaged me, and they were like, bro, this Bible, the Bible is messed up. And they mean that in a positive way. They don't mean it like it's broken. They mean like these people are crazy, and which I love that because I'm like, there's hope for me, right? Yeah, come on, that's good preaching. I don't care if you like it or not. You get to, you know, Joseph, right? He's betrayed by his family. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. He gets to work for a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife wrongly accuses him of, of trying to rape her. He's thrown into prison, blah, 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 blah. Many years go by, he interprets dreams. Before you know it, though, Joseph is sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, second in charge of all of Egypt. Then you got Moses, and he's, you know, he just killed a guy. That's pretty, see, once again, if these people are real. And I had anger issues too, so I feel that. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I just want to be clear. I don't want to leave anything up to misinterpretation. Some of your opinions are already very low of me. I, there's no need for them to be any lower. Oh, it's going to be bad later. <laughs> Jesus, forgive me. <laughs> then you've got Moses, right? He's parting the Red Sea. He's talking to plants on fire. He's asking God to feed them, and then manna falls out of heaven to the ground. If I'm not mistaken, I think the actual definition of manna is, what is that? It's like something, it's like, what, what's that? And then, you know, there's a pillar of cloud by day, which kept them in the shade. Otherwise, they would have been sunburned to a crisp. And then there's the fire at night, which keeps them warm and leads them as they journey. There's military victories in there. Then we get to Joshua, right? Like, we first are really introduced to Joshua at Jericho, and we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. And Joshua... It's like, okay, God, you, you told us to go through Jericho to the land of Canaan. And just so you understand, what was happening in that journey was that, that God was returning peop the people of Israel back to the place where Abraham originally went to. You know, with Joseph, they went to Egypt, and they stayed there for about 400 years, and God's bringing them back to their, their promised land. 
the land flowing with milk and honey. And so Joshua says, okay, we gotta, we got to fight in Jericho. And God says, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to march around the walls for seven days. And at the end of the, on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times, and you're going to blow a trumpet, and everybody's going to shout. And that's how you're going to win the battle. Can, can, we just, can we just not be Christians who take the Bible for granted for a moment and recognize how crazy that is? It's so easy. Do you hear these stories so often, especially if you grew up in church? You know, you, this is like the VBS thing. You play the games. You, run, you walk around the room, you know, and then people stand in the middle and they fall down. I don't know, something like that. You know, church camp, VBS, whatever. So you've heard these stories all your life for some of you. And, and what happens is you, you hear them and you go, you, you, just, you, just, you just breeze on past it. Because it's like, yeah, that happened. But, but just imagine that you heard that story for the first time today. And for some of you, who knows, maybe you did. Maybe somebody watches online or listens to this message later. And this is the first time you've ever heard about the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down. Not a sword was used in that moment. Not, not a... You know, no, no weapons that we would understand of weapons of warfare, no bows and arrows. It was just the Lord who brought down the walls of this giant place and allowed the people of God to go in there and then to take this land back. There's another place in Joshua that, that literally Joshua says, okay, God, we're about to win this battle, but it's getting dark, and I'm afraid as it gets dark, the enemy might be able to advance and, and, and regain uh, their su- a superior position. And God says, you know what we'll do about that? We'll just, we'll just stop the earth. We'll stop the sun. We'll stop the solar system right where it's at. And we're just going to keep the sun up in the sky. The sun will stand still. And we're going to give you victory. And, and, and then there's other places where Joshua prays for God to give him victory. And, and hailstones fall and, 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 and just, just like destroy the enemy. And then and then even with Gideon, remember we talked about Gideon a moment ago? You remember like Gideon's first battle? He had like 30,000-something people. God says, oh, that's too many. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, 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 and then God says, that's too many. I want you to go get them to drink from this, this creek over there. And, 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 and the ones who drink this way, get rid of them. The ones who drink this way, keep them. And when it's all said and done, there's 3,000 people. And then when it's all said and done, even after that, there's 300 people. And God says, finally, you have the right amount to go take on the Midianites. And Gideon, if you go read his story, remember I called him kind of a twerp, he was hiding in a wine press away from the enemy like he was, he was a coward. God speaks to him and says, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, bro, who are you talking to? Because I am hiding from the enemy away. And so God's called him to go take the enemy and, you know, all, you know whatever. And Gideon says, okay, well, I've got, I've got 30,000 people. I think we can do it. And God says, nah, let's make that 300 Oh, and by the way, don't even take your swords. Don't take your bows. Now, here's what I want you to take. I'm just, you know, gods of heaven going, what are those? Oh, yeah, jars. Let's take jars. You got your, tr- I call them trumpets. They're like horns. I don't know what they would have been. Shofars, maybe. And uh, it's just a great word to say ever so often, shofar. And uh, please, nobody bring one of those out, though. And, uh, and, and, oh, and a torch. Some of y'all are like, I hear you. I see you look at shofar never heard of those and um and i want you to go circle around the midianites and when when i give you the command you're gonna break the jars you're gonna hold up your torches and you're gonna blow your horns 
It's crazy, right? That's how they got victory. Because what happened is they broke the jars, which then revealed the torches. 300 people around this camp of the Midianites, they blow their horns. And you know what the Midianites do? It's kind of gruesome, really. They kill each other because they're scared to death. They're confused. They're running in utter chaos. And the people of Israel are just like, <laughs> just watching, holding up their torch, going, my my goodness, look at this. Samson, with his unbelievable strength, kills all these people with a donkey's jawbone. And that is the New King James translation of that. And so here we are. Samuel is trying to tell the people of Israel, you don't want a king. Like, you, need to, you, you don't want a king. And it's not that God never wanted to give them a king. If you go and under, some people actually think that God never wanted them to have a king. That's, that's, that's false. It just wasn't time and it just wasn't his way. And so Samuel says, you don't want a king. He's going to make you do whatever he tells you to do. He basically is going to make you his slaves. He's going to tax you. And apparently they didn't understand what that meant. Because had they understood what that meant, they'd been like, yeah, you're right. We don't need no king. We good. We good. He's going to take your best fields. He's going to take your best crops. He's going to take your, your best animals. I think that he may have even said that he's going to take your best daughters. That gets awkward. He's going to make you fight for him whenever he wants you to fight. He's going to make you do for him whatever he wants you to do. You don't want a king. And so to really get some, some context here, you have to ask yourself a question. Why does Israel want a king now? This is what verse 19 says of 2 Samuel chapter 8. The people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. Even if he's going to take our fields, even if he's going to take our people, even if he's going to take our money, even if he's going to make us serve him, even so, we still want a king. And verse 20 gives you the clue right here. We want to be like everybody else. Our king will judge us and he will lead us into battle. We want to be like everyone else. We want somebody else to fight for us, to lead us. And, and this is like, this is a thought I had as I was like kind of studying for this. Is I think a lot of times we have this idea that the, a life of faith is easy. But if you've ever tried it, you understand it's so much harder to live by faith than it is to live by sight. It's so much more difficult to be obedient to the Lord when logic is so against the thing that you know he's telling you to do. And in this moment, I just have this feeling that the people of Israel were saying, you know what, we would rather be able to live by what we see than, what, than who we know. So God gives them what they want. Man, how many of you are thankful that God hasn't given you everything you've ever wanted or prayed for? Come on, somebody quote good old Garth Brooks for a moment. So, God gives them what they want. They get King Saul. How many of you ever read about King Saul's story? There were some good moments, right? But overall, it ended pretty tragically. 
There's King David. And like, oh, I love studying King David. And, I, and I, this is going to sound funny, but David's the kind of guy in the Bible that makes me feel like there's hope for me. Because the dude had issues upon issues, right? He made mistakes upon mistakes, yet he is still known as a, God, or a man after God's own heart. And I'm like, you know, that, 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 that honestly, I'm not all joking aside, like, I resonate with that, knowing that, that God can love me in spite of me and use me in spite of me. Then there's King Solomon. And after King Solomon, it really starts going downhill pretty quick. Eventually, Israel breaks out into civil war. Then they split up. You've got the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. <laughs> Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam. I'm trying to remember which one of those is which. And eventually, over a long period of time, they're exiled by the Babylonians and then the Persians until they're sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. I love the Bible. It's just so, it's, it's such good literature. It really is. I'm not even joking. Like, I, I like Lord of the Rings, but I honestly, I think the Bible's got this, I think it's got a beat. It's epic, man. It's good stories. Exactly. And eventually, we find ourselves back to Mark chapter 8, where Israel is a shell of its former self. It's not exiled by the Babylonians. It's not split up by civil war. It's not uh, ruled by the Persians. Rather, it's occupied by the Romans. That was a lot of history right there. I just gave you like basically the gist of the Old Testament in about 15 minutes. You're welcome. Yeah. Jesus asked them in Mark 8, 29, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Now, there's a reason why, even though for some of you, you might think, man, why is he telling all this background information? Well, to understand the sentence that Peter utters when he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you have to understand where they have come from all throughout history to arrive at this moment in Mark chapter 8. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the deliverer. You are the savior. You are the king who will rescue us from Roman occupation. You will reestablish the throne of David. And you will lead us back into not just the promised land, but the promised season of blessing, of prosperity, and of power. And Jesus, if you can heal blind eyes, if you can raise the dead, if you can multiply a sack lunch and feed thousands of of people with it. Just imagine what you can do with a standing army. When Peter, when Peter says these words, you need to understand that he is not thinking about Jesus, the suffering servant, who's going to die on a cross so that I can be forgiven of my sins. He is envisioning Jesus, the offspring of David who will reclaim the throne and Peter says to himself I will get to sit at his right hand you know there's places in the scriptures where they actually argue with each other about which one's going to be the right hand man 
when you come into your kingdom, it says. They ain't talking about heaven. They're talking about an earthly kingdom when they say that. And Jesus says, why are you fighting like this? That's how the world fights. If you want to be first, you need to learn to be last. And their minds are just blown. This doesn't make any sense because it's not earthly economics. It's not earthly stuff that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And you're going to reestablish the throne of David. You're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to be blessed again. We're going to be prosperous again. We're going to be powerful again. Like in the days of Saul and David and Solomon, when we had all of the money, when we had all of the power, when we had all of the influence. I mean, go back and read about the reign of Solomon. They were so blessed that other rulers from other lands would come and ask and inquire of Solomon, how are you so blessed? How are you so prosperous? How are you so powerful? They were the ancient superpower of their day. So Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're going to make it all right again. You're going to kick the Romans out. And in the words of Lee Corso, every time he picks, or somebody picks UT to beat Florida, not so fast. I would have made an Alabama joke there, but Ben and Lori aren't here, so it kind of loses its cool. <laughs> Not so fast. Because the very next section, Jesus says this in verse 31. Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, which is a prophetic terminology referring to the, the Son of God, so don't let that confuse you that it says Son of Man. You have to go read the book of Daniel to understand that. And just, I mean, like everything's connected in here, right? Jesus began to tell them, Son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead, which I've told you before. He always talked about that, rising from the dead part, but they never heard it. Or if they did hear it, they thought, he's crazy, and we're not even going to pay attention to what he just said. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside. And he began to reprimand him for saying such things. <laughs> Can you, like, if you, the, like some translations say rebuke, which sounds, you know, a lot stronger than reprimand. But, you know, I just imagine, you know, Jesus is like, yeah, in three days I'll rise again. Peter's like, he's looking around and he's seeing the other 11 disciples and he's like, man, these guys are kind of losing hope here. Jesus saying these weird things doesn't really make sense. So, he gets Jesus by, you know, the arm. He's like, hey, let, let's talk a minute. I need, I, need to you, I need to set you straight. So they go off to the side, and, 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 and Peter says, listen, you're the Messiah. We covered that. You're good. But uh, how you going to rule if you're dead? How you going to raise up the military to kick out the Romans if you're dead? And Peter doesn't say it, but I guarantee you, most of all, in his mind, he was thinking, and how am I going to be your right-hand man if you're dead? <laughs> Verse 33. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then he reprimanded Peter. And boy, does he go off on him. 
Get behind me, Satan, or get away from me, Satan. I like the King James. For you savoreth the things of man and not the things of God. Or you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. He's talking. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things. Peter thinks, okay, we can deal with that. You know, we can, we can, a little suffering's good for you. It produces perseverance and builds character. Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the priests, and the teachers. Peter says, yeah, I don't really like them anyway. They're cool. That's fine. I mean, good. We can get rid of them. I don't, they're, they're jerks. I don't like them. And then, and then Peter says, or then Jesus says, and I'm going to be killed. No, 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 no. That, that can't work. We can't do that, Jesus. So he tells Jesus, what's up? Jesus says, what's up? Right back to him. When Peter sees Jesus as Messiah, he sees the throne. He doesn't see the cross. When Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, he sees an empty tomb. He doesn't see enemies defeated. He sees the enemy defeated. Peter thinks that Jesus came to save him from the Romans. Jesus is trying to show them that I came to save you from yourself. Then he turns to the crowd, verse 34, he says, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Give up your own way. Take up your cross. Follow me. And then whatever you willingly lose, you'll save. Which, that's just kingdom economics, man. It doesn't make, like, that's where that logic, you know, our logic falls apart. But in the kingdom, logic Logic is, is irrelevant. It's, it's faith, right? And so what I choose to give up or what I choose to give away, I get to keep or I get to save or actually, more times than not, I get to see it grow and prosper. Don, will you and your team go ahead and come up? A uh, little trivia. I, I became a Christian at the age of 15. And I used to stay up at night and I would sit with my Bible and my Strong's Concordance, and my, um, oh, what's the dude's name? The commentary guy. Anybody remember? Matthew Henry's commentary. That was my, that was my three resources. My King James Bible, because if you weren't using King James, you weren't saved. Just saying. And um, uh, my Strong's Concordance. Oh, and my King James Bible, by the way, was a Thompson Chain reference. Can I get a witness? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I still have that thing. I love that Bible. I still use it today. And then my Matthew Henry commentary, abridged version, because the, uh, the non-abridged was way too big. And I would write sermons. I didn't have anywhere to preach. I didn't have anybody to preach to. But I would write sermons. I would stay up to 3 a.m. writing sermons and then still get up and go to school the next day. And the very first sermon I wrote was on this passage of Scripture. And it, today actually might be the first, it's crazy enough, today might be the first time I've ever preached some of this passage of scripture like this. I remember as a 15 year old and I would be writing this message and I would be reading these words, I would feel internally challenged to make sure that I was doing everything I could to be the very best Christian I could. 
And, and I do think that there is something to be said for that interpretation of that passage of Scripture. But I, I think now, though, 20 years later, 20, yeah, 20 years later, I think that my interpretation of it was a little wrong. And, and I, I think a lot of it is because I used to see God, and I still revert to this occasionally, but when I do, I know there's something wrong in my heart and I need to check it out. I need to get in there and do some work. But I used to see God as some mean old man in the sky just waiting to thump my ear when I messed up. I used to see, I used to see Jesus as this person who was eternally frustrated with my inability to do the thing that he told me to do. I used to see the Holy Spirit as the one who reminded me of how awful of a person I was. But the more I've grown in the Lord, the more I realize that that's not His nature at all. That His nature really and truly is that He's good and He's, he's loving, He's kind, He's patient, He's caring, He's, he's merciful, he, he has grace upon grace upon grace. And that he's far more interested in pointing out my identity in him than he is my mistakes that I make. So I used to read, give up your own way. And I would think to myself, I got to stop doing everything that I like. I mean, really, that's what I would think. Like I would say to myself, if it's something that makes me happy, it probably makes God mad. But don't a lot of people feel that way about Christianity? Don't we often even represent it that way to the world around us? That God's number one mission in our life is to make sure that we don't enjoy life. But can I tell you that that is absolutely and utterly backwards from the true meaning of the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things that you need to give up. Man, I have given up a lot of stuff, but none of them do I count as valuable in comparison to the glory of knowing Christ and Christ crucified. Now I read it. Give up your own way because I have a better way. Yeah. Not give up your own way because I don't want you to enjoy life. Not give up your own way because if you're having fun, you're not doing it right. No, give up your own way because I love you and I have a better way. And you know, the way that you've been trying, the way you've been struggling with, more times than not, that way isn't working. So why do you keep doing that? Instead of doing it your own way, why don't you try doing it my way take up your cross he says I used to think oh that means that oh I gotta work hard for God and a lot of people think that now he's gonna tell you to do things isn't he he's gonna give you assignments he's gonna call you to certain things he's gonna put demands on your life but when he says take up your cross he's not telling you to work hard for him to do better for him to no he's saying take up your cross because this cross is the one that I made specifically for you and and you need to do the thing that, that I've called you to do because I know you better than you know you and I'm the one who wants to give you fulfillment even more than you want to be fulfilled 
Take up your cross. Stop looking at everybody else's cross. Stop looking at everybody else's life. Stop comparing yourself to them. Stop, stop measuring your worth based on the type of cross they're carrying and just carry your own. Because I knew you before the world was formed and I know you better than you know you. So the thing that I've called you to do, the thing that I've made for you to do, the place and the plans that I have for you, they're so much better than anything you could ever do for you on your own. So, so give up your way because I love you and take up your cross because it's the one that I made for you and follow me. In other words, where I go, that's where you need to go because I know what's best for you. And it may not always be easy, but it'll always be worth it. Sometimes in the middle of the process, it, it, it's gonna, it can be difficult, but just keep following me one step at a time, one, one motion at a time, and give me what you have. You know, what, what would you trade your life for? What would you trade your soul for? If you give up your soul for the world, what have you gained? I love this. This is what he's saying. If you'll give me what you have, I'll give you what I have. I mean, like, listen, that's about as good of a deal as you can get. Right? I like to trade stuff. Some of y'all who know me make fun of me about that. I just want to tell you, mind your own business. Live your own life. You got your own problems. Shut up and get out of mind. But I love to do it. Like, I like to trade. Like, I don't ever own anything for more than about a year. And I like, I, what I really like, I like the challenge of a good deal. I like trying to, to make, even, even if I, like, if somebody's asking $500 for something, you better believe I'm going to offer them three. I know they ain't going to take it. I know I'm insulting them a little bit, but maybe they'll take four. You smell what I'm stepping in? I love a good deal. This is the best deal in human history right there. Give me what you got, and I'll give you what I got. And 3,000 years ago, going all the way back to 1 Samuel 8, the people of God made a mistake. They told God what they wanted, and he, they said, even if it's not good for me, that's what we want. 2,000 years ago, Peter and the disciples actually tried to make the exact same mistake and crown an earthly king when Jesus came. Not to wear an earthly crown, but to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And today, I, I want to pray two different prayers. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. First and foremost, maybe today you need to ask this question to yourself. Who do I say that Jesus is? And I want, I want you to ask yourself in the sense of, I don't want you to answer it with your words, but in the way you live your life, who do you say that Jesus is? In the way that you talk to your family, in the way that you talk to your coworkers, in the way that you talk to people that you disagree with, who do you say that Jesus is? And today, before we go any further, if you would say with your words, with your soul, and with your life, I want to say that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. Would you lift your hand high in the air? I see you, I see you. Got you. Lord Jesus, you see these hands, you know these people, everyone watching online, if that's you, 
I just pray now in this moment that there will be an overwhelming sense of commitment from your heart to His as you commit yourself to Him, as you give yourself to Him, as you say, Lord, I don't want to just belong to you in church, but God, I want to belong to you on a Tuesday afternoon. I want to belong to you when I'm, when I'm dealing with problems in my job. I want to belong to you when my family is not going the way I thought it would go. I, I want in those moments, God, my words, my actions, my life to reflect that you are Savior and Lord of me. Not just in the good moments, not in the easy moments, but in every moment. Now I want to pray another prayer. I want you to, you can open your eyes. Are you guys okay if I read one more verse? It's actually two though. I kind of told a fib there. Told a little lie. I want to go to another account of the gospel. We'll go to Matthew chapter 11. If you did our, if you're doing our Bible reading with us every day, this was actually one of the verses we read yesterday. And it wasn't initially going to be in this message. But as I read it, I thought, man, I just, I just, I got to put that in there. I got, it's got to be part of it. Jesus said, and I honestly, I think this is like a cousin verse to what we read in Mark 8. Come, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. Even though it sounds very differently, I think the, the final intent is actually the same. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. In other words, give up your way for my way. Take my yoke or the cross that I made for you. Because a lot of us, a lot of us are carrying things that we were never designed to carry. So like, who's willing to be close to me in the season of COVID right now? Which one of you? Any of you? Monica? That was an awkward way to say that, wasn't it? Come here. So, me and Monica are oxen. Monica more so than me. You can't. And the way, the way that would work is you would take a pair of oxen and a yoke would go across their neck, across their back. You would take a young, weaker, more inexperienced ox, which is why we've got Monica. I love you so much, you're amazing. <laughs> and you would pair him or her with a stronger <laughs> smarter and overwhelmingly handsome ox. And then you would put them in a field and they would pull a plow. And so what would happen is the young ox 
would learn and grow stronger as it followed the older, more mature ox. And so what would happen is the load would be placed on their back. And while the load was on the back of the other ox, they didn't actually bear much weight because the older, bigger, stronger one would bear the weight. They just let it rest on their shoulders until they learned the path of the field from following. Come on, go with me. Gosh, this is hard. They would learn the path of the field. Let's just do it like this because that's weird. I don't know what to do. They would learn the path of the field. And every so often, the young ox would try, pull away from me, would try to get away and do their own thing. And when they did that, they would begin to feel the full weight of that load because they were not resting under the authority of the one that they were placed beside and directed to follow. And so as they pulled away, it would get hard. It would get heavy. The road would get difficult because the older, more mature one knew where they needed to go. And he would pull the other way. And Jesus says, thank you, Monica. Appreciate you. Jesus says, come to me. Yeah, give it up for Monica. And that awkward illustration. If the load feels heavy today, I, this, the Lord is in this. I know we've had a lot of fun. I've cut up a lot. Hopefully you're okay with that. If not, I'm just, you're just at the wrong church. I'm just the way it is. But this is the Holy Spirit with all sincerity. If the load is heavy, it's because you're carrying it wrong. If the load is heavy, you need to get back under the authority. You need to get back close to the one who says, follow me. Walk beside me. Go where I go. Pick up what I pick up. Do what I do. And I will carry the weight. You just have to take the next step. If the load is heavy, if the worries are heavy, if the anxiety is heavy, if fear is heavy, if pain, if bitterness, if it's heavy, it's because you're carrying it wrong. Will you stand with me? Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary. I love what you said a minute ago before, before I preached. He said, and I'm probably going to mess it up a little bit, but you said a lot of times we live under this assumption that we can't go to him until we got it all together, right? But you know, biblically speaking, that's completely backwards. It's like, if you think you've got it all together, you won't go to him then. Even though you really need to. He actually invites us when you feel weary, when you feel weak, when, you, when it feels heavy, when it feels like it's falling apart, when it feels like a struggle that's when you go to him that's when you make that move to him and I, I love so much this understanding that he's not a mean old man in the sky waiting to thump you in the ear when you mess up rather he he gives us this picture in Luke as he talks about the prodigal son and that he is a father with open arms waiting for you to make that turn and make that return to him and when you get to him he doesn't start pointing at all the junk you've done he doesn't start pointing out your lack of faith or where you messed up, or how you started trying to go another way. Instead, he says, 
kill the fatted calf. We're going to eat good tonight. He gets the best robe, puts it on his shoulders. He gets the ring, and he puts it on his hand. And he says, my son or my child who was dead is now alive again, and we're going to celebrate. So today, if you are weary, if it feels heavy, if you feel far from him, you have every reason to hold your head high, to lift your hands in worship, because he is saying to you today, come to me.